Either way, you'll need a search warrant first. So come on, let's make one together. Now, first of all, we're going to need a piece of paper. I tore this out of the Constitution. It's meant to have a Bill of Rights on it, but it's blank. Okay, now just ask a grown-up for a pair of scissors. Be careful. And with me, we're going to cut corners on journalistic safeguards. Okay. And then grab your texter. And we're going to draw our parameters. So keep it nice and broad. Really close to the edge there. Emails. Metadata. Underpants drawers. Whatever you need to show that Australia is nice and safe. And if you make a mistake, don't worry. Because you can always add, copy, alter or delete anything you want. Now, let's grab some glue because we need to make our case stick. There we are. Pat that down. And of course, then we have to write national security to stop people asking pesky questions. And the best thing of all, you don't even need a judge to sign off on it. Can you spell Queen Bee and Registrar? Me neither. Okay, we've got our warrant now. It's time to be a federal police officer. Let's be, be, be the AFP. You might have even seen us on TV. Just following orders, don't blame me. How good is democracy? from Brisbane, Australia, this is The FOMO Show. I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. And this is a fortnightly podcast where we talk about the exciting ideas changing the world today and what might change the world tomorrow. We'll help you stay across what's going on so you don't get the fear of missing out. You can find us at FOMO.show or by searching for The FOMO Show on your platform of choice. Everything in the show is in the show notes. You can find links to the stuff we're talking about and timestamps to the relevant parts so you can always skip ahead or find it later. So this episode we're going to be talking about, uh, for our feature, we're going to be talking about China's Belt and Road Initiative, which is a huge project that China's been taking on for about six years now in around about 70 countries. It's cost trillions of dollars. They're building all sorts of ports and train networks and all sorts of different other things. So that's going to form part of our geopolitics series, which we've been uh, doing for the last few episodes. Yeah, uh, we've got a bunch of news, including Elon Musk's Neuralink, which is promising to put needles in your brain uh, to plug you into AI. Uh, We're also talking about US Treasury's view on crypto and scaling on Ethereum. In our privacy and security segment, we're going to be talking about Google containers from Mozilla, which is a really nice way to keep uh, Google out of from tracking all your different movements all over the internet. Mm. And um, yeah, we've got a couple of cool tools as well. Uh, a crypto fear and greed index. So uh, yeah, lots to be talking about this episode. 
So what have you been up to in the last couple of weeks, mate? Mate, I, well, first off, I've been ordering pizza. I ordered an 18-inch pizza, fantastic, mm. for delivery. Uh, so that's going to turn up in about two hours from now. I've also been listening to this great podcast on surveillance and human freedom, which was recommended by TM in our FOMO Telegram chat. So they were talking about the UK's incoming facial tracking algorithms, China's surveillance technology, and basically the, how that affects us as a society. So really cool read some really thought-provoking views from people who thoroughly disagree with me. Yeah, really worth checking out. Uh, what about yourself? Yeah, so I've been, um, actually, yeah, just today, uh, um, uh, Starcraft podcaster and everything else, who I've followed for a number of years, passed away unexpectedly. So that was uh, that was pretty full-on. It uh, just kind of makes you think about life, I guess. And uh, he was only a couple of years older than me. So only wow. in his early, very early thirties. So, um, yeah. And it's weird. Like you don't realize how attached you get to some of these internet personalities that you follow until something like this happens, which is very sudden. And, uh, yeah, just, you know, I, I've spent today in a bit of a bit of a funk just thinking about life. So yeah, uh, condolences to in controls, family and friends. And yeah, it's been a bit strange, but other than that, I've been playing around with an open source project called Bookstack, which is essentially yeah. like a, it's like a, a self-hosted wiki, but it's a lot easier than a lot of the other self-hosted wiki tools I've used before or tried mm-hmm. to use before. Um, and you can spin it up on a server very simply, uh, works really well. So playing around with that, lusting over a number of the new AMD CPUs, which just came out as well. Yeah. Um, probably going to pick one of them up once they're back in stock, uh, just because I'm feeling the limitations of my own CPU at the moment, and those ones look really good. So, uh, wow. yeah. Also watched the Expanse trailer for season four, um, and uh, it was absolutely unreal. They gave like a five-minute segment from the new season, and Amazon have just taken it over. It's uh, kind of like a hardcore sci-fi show for those that haven't watched it. Hmm. Um yeah, amazing. Incredible. I can't wait. It's it's like six months to go before um oh. Yeah, before it comes out. Actually speaking of, did you did you see that they're making a new do are you a Star Trek fan at all? Have you no, did you ever get into Star I've, Trek? I never got into it, but I've actually been really interested in checking out both Star Trek and oh, what's the other one? Stargate. Oh yes. I've oh. been meaning to check out both of those. But so why do you ask? Oh, well, they're making a new uh, series around Picard, who is Patrick Stewart's character mm. in uh, The Next Generation. And mm. um, I was really sceptical about it until I watched the trailer, and now I cannot be more excited. Uh, there's a number of number of people who've reprised their roles from the series 25 years ago, and uh, it just it looks very cool. <laughs> Ooh, we're going to have to include a link to that in the chat, so yeah. I need to take a look at that. Yeah, definitely. Mate, is this podcast investment advice? Uh, in a word, no. We're not saying you should buy anything at all on this podcast. And full disclosure, we're both personally invested in different shares, funds, and cryptocurrencies, some of which we talk about on the show. But if we talk about an investment product, it doesn't mean you should buy it. So do your own research, never invest more than you can afford to lose, and most of all, avoid the fear of missing out. If you're new around here and new to blockchain and cryptocurrency, you can check out our Blockchain Basics series. It starts from episode two and continues on until about episode eight. Yeah, it gives you a really good background on some of the fundamentals and help you understand what on earth we're talking about when we talk about a few of those Bitcoin and, and smart contracts concepts. All right, let's get into the news. 
So first bit of news, uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Munchen has recently talked on crypto enforcement, and that's Treasury Secretary in the United States. Yeah, so shout out to Joe for sharing this one in our Telegram group. Yeah, thanks for sharing that with us. We'll play a brief clip from the talk now. The Treasury Department has expressed very serious concerns that Libra could be misused by money launderers and terrorist financiers. Cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin have been exploited to support billions of dollars of illicit activity like cybercrime, tax evasion, extortion, ransomware, illicit drugs, human trafficking. Many players have attempted to use cryptocurrencies to fund their malign behavior. This is indeed a national security issue. So... Essentially, they are pretty terrified about Facebook's Libra. And in a way, they're terrified of crypto on the whole as well. I mean, that makes a massive difference. I mean, two years ago, if you heard people talking about Bitcoin and all that stuff, they're saying, oh, it's nonsense. It's nothing to be worried about, la, la, la. And now it's since a couple of tech companies, or since one tech company has decided to jump in on the game, it's suddenly a terrifying reality. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing just the backflip that this has made. It seems like before Libra popped out, there wasn't too much concern about cryptocurrency. It was kind of quaint. There wasn't – sometimes people have mentioned it, but ever since this Libra white paper has dropped, it's been incredible to watch the reaction in the US Senate and uh, with a number of people in the US financial industry. It's it, They just seem very, very scared. Mm. I mean, even in the EU, I heard a news story today that was saying in the EU – Libra won't be able to launch until the regulators are happy with it. It's not really surprising at all because, I mean, naturally they want to protect their currencies from any and all threats and it's a bit of a threat. Yeah, yeah. Then I, I guess it's, it's going to be something that's very interesting to watch because there's now going to be a number of hearings on it. They've called to stop Libra completely. Um, I saw recently that, what's her name, Ocasio-Cortez. Um, anyway, she was grilling someone from Libra on the currency. So, yeah, I mean, you know, when you've got a monopoly on the monetary supply, you want to protect that monopoly when someone comes and threatens it. Mm, mm. Yeah, as an aside, I actually was listening to a podcast today and someone was actually saying C-SPAN, who record all of the Congress and, and all that sort of stuff on TV in America, he said that they actually ruin politics because by having a camera live streaming it all the time, all these politicians and all that sort of stuff say stuff that's just right for the camera because then they can say, oh, look, there's me defending this or mm. doing that. And it's uh, all became about appearing on camera, which is kind of interesting. Like virtue signaling yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah oh, that's. A, I mean, that's that could be a really interesting thing to look into too, like the effect that constant media coverage has had on politics and sound bites and all that. We've seen it even here in Australia. You see it with politicians. They, you know, they get 10 seconds on TV every now and then. So they intentionally try and say something that's very, con- you know, controversial and sound bitey. Yeah. But I guess in the same way, you know, it's, it's good that we can actually see what's going on in the halls of power. So mm. yeah, anyway. <laughs> Big piece of news that came out in the Ethereum side of things. Yeah, Vitalik Buterin has proposed Bitcoin Cash integration to scale the Ethereum network in the short term. 
Yeah, this is really, really interesting. So the, he introduced this well, summary of the, his idea in a post on Ethereum research earlier this month. And the backstory to this is that Ethereum's been working on a, a scalability solution, like an upgrade essentially. They call it Ethereum 2.0 mm-hmm. um, and they want to move from proof of work to proof of stake. Yeah. And that's been kind of pushed back, pushed back, pushed back. They're now talking early 2020. Buterin's essentially said that maybe we could deploy other blockchains as a new option for improving the Ethereum scalability as a short-term measure. So specifically, um, Buterin said that the Bitcoin Cash blockchain is a perfect match for this purpose as the hard-fought cryptocurrency provides a data throughput uh, of about 53 kilobytes a second as opposed to Ethereum's 8 kilobytes. And he additionally outlined three other compelling reasons for using Bitcoin Cash, you know, low fees, the readiness of machinery available and, and the community's openness from the Bitcoin Cash side to people using the blockchain for whatever they want as long as they pay transactions fees. Yeah, so Buterin noted Bitcoin Cash's 10-minute block time is the main impediment to becoming a good Ethereum scalability solution, but he also noticed, noted that the problem could be solved by zero confirmation payments using techniques like Avalanche pre-consensus, which is, which is another technology that people have um, been using, I think, in relation with Bitcoin Cash. So, yeah, really, really interesting. And something I never really thought I'd hear out of, of, of Vitalik, but it seems like he's he's widening his viewpoint and and trying to work with what's working now. Mm. Surprisingly, he didn't even consider looking at EOS, which is the fastest blockchain that's in action at the moment. There's zero transaction fees and it allows for massive scalability. But I guess because EOS was introduced to deliver on the promises of Ethereum. Maybe Vitalik is a bit hesitant at the moment, but mm. yeah, surprising he didn't look at that. Yeah, and Vitalik's actually contributed to some of the code for EOS as well. So um, yeah, who knows? <laughs> some interesting reactions on Twitter though. Someone put out a tweet where they put Vitalik's, a photo of Vitalik Buterin with a, they run it through that, was it Face App app that makes yeah. them look older? There's a picture of a 90-year-old Vitalik and it says, the year is 2049, Ethereum 2.0 is finally production ready. Vitalik Buterin stakes proof. Basically just a great little picture of him. Check out that tweet. <laughs> yeah. So next bit of news, a neural implant can send a camera feed into blind people's brains. Yes, so in an extraordinary medical trial, according to futurism.com, six blind people who have now had their vision partially restored thanks to Orion, which is a new device that feeds images from a camera directly into the brain. And these guys may just be the first of many to benefit from this cutting edge tech. So the Orion device comprises two main parts. It's got a brain implant and a pair of glasses. Now, the implant consists of 60 electrodes that receive information from a camera mounted on the glasses. And together, those electrodes can deliver visual information directly to the wearer's brain, removing the eyes from the equation entirely. So to test this, they actually asked completely blind participants in an early study to look at a black computer screen while using Orion. When a white square would randomly appear on the screen, the participants could correctly point to the square the majority of the time. Now, they've said that theoretically, if they have hundreds of thousands of electrodes in the brain, you can produce 
a rich visual Im- image. So they say think of a painting that uses pointillism where thousands of tiny spots come together to create a full image. We could potentially do the same by stimulating thousands of spots on the occipital part of the brain. So even in its current state, the device is already changing lives. So, you know, one of the participants said, look, it's awe-inspiring to see so much beauty. Um, this was a 35-year-old study participant who's been blind since age nine. Um, he noted that the new ability to see his wife's face shape and his kids running up to him for a hug was just incredible. Yeah, he said it's not perfect vision. It's like grainy 1980s surveillance video footage, but it's something. You know, for someone that ha- doesn't have any sight, it's uh, it's it's incredible for them to even have that much when it's you know when you compare it to not having anything at all. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a really interesting one to watch. I mean, the, the the technology it sounds like is only going to get better as they develop it further and further. And that's a great tie into the next piece, which is Elon Musk's Neuralink presentation, which he had the other week. Now, if you haven't, are not familiar with it, the goal of the Neuralink project is to reduce the latency communicating with computers entirely via the brain. So basically trying to wire us together closer to computers and even having sort of artificial intelligence stuff. There's like read-write capability. But what it's doing is they use robots to connect tens of thousands of tiny needles, like really, really small, thinner than a, uh, I think it's thinner than a hair, directly Mm. into the brain via a two millimeter incision, which they can then glue shut. So they want to make this as easy as LASIK eye surgery. And you've got to watch the whole presentation to see what the whole thing is on about. But it's it's a massive goal. But, you know, they've been testing it. I think they've been testing it on monkeys at the moment. But they're aiming aspirationally to get into human trials by, um, by I think it's next year. Yeah, yeah. And look, you really do have to go watch this video because apart from everything else, it has a really, really good breakdown of what's actually going on in your brain in a number of different areas and what happens when you stimulate different areas and how your brain interprets certain stimuli. Mm. And it kind of runs through, it almost runs through like a presentation on the brain as well as a presentation on what they're planning to do with this tech. So yeah, yeah really, really recommend going to this, watching the video. It's about an hour 45, I think. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a shortened version available on CNET, but we'll share the full version. But yeah, what, key takeaways is, yeah, is they will do this surgery and then that would put that into your brain and then that could communicate wirelessly with a device that you have on you Um, and then you could use that initially they're looking to get uh, let you interact with your mobile phone or a mouse and a keyboard it's it's pretty crazy what they're looking to do with it Um, i mean it's going to be like ten thousand odd like little needles that have little different bits in your brain and yeah it's going to be powerful. Let's play a little clip, a little creepy bit, little click <laughs> from Elon Musk talking about it. In terms of things that I think are important to, to bear in mind, this, um, I think, has a very good purpose, uh, which is to cure important diseases um, and ultimately to help secure humanity's uh, future as a civilization relative to AI. Um, the threads are very tiny, um, and there's a lot of them, and they're very carefully placed. And um, the, the, the operation on a per-chip basis, uh, it, it involves just a, a, a two-millimeter two uh, incision, which is dilated to eight millimeters, um, and then the, the, the chip is placed, placed through that, and then it, re, it goes back to being two millimeters, and you can basically glue it shut. Uh, you don't even need a stitch. So 
and, and then the, the interface to the, um, to, to, the, to the chip is, is wireless. So you have no wires poking out of your head. Very, very important. Um, so you, it's, it's basically Bluetooth to your phone. Because we'll have to watch the App Store updates for that one. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure we don't have a driver issue. <laughs> and nobody <laughs>, laughs. It's just him. <laughs> it's so it has, true. I mean, we, we were talking about it. Function. Yeah, well, we were talking about it uh, a couple of days ago, weren't we? If, imagine if it was Windows that your brain ran on. And, oh, that's so You know, true. you got like a blue screen of death or something or you, or you forgot to, like you, you missed a notification update or worse. And imagine if it was Android. Like some of those Android updates don't get pushed for like but through the vendors for like two months after the security update's been pushed oh, upstream. Oh, that's so true. You know? Because that's, that's the big elephant in the room here is like if you're hooking your brain up to a computer, and you're giving a, a computer read-write access to your brain. So read read access is bad enough, but read-write access means that not only can the computer read what's in your brain, it can also write to your brain and send your brain signals and overwrite things. Mm. And if that gets hacked, like if someone manages to break into that system and effectively break into your brain, at that point, you know, you could lose contr- complete control over your body. Mm. Mm. Which is pretty pretty That's crazy. Terrifying <laughs> thought. So you suddenly become a vegetable. Yeah, or a slave. Sheesh. Uh, I mean, you know, and and then you start looking at. I mean, imagine if you can you could feasibly see down the track that you know everyone's required to have one of these brain implants, and then if you commit a crime or something, you could be sentenced to do manual labour. And it would essentially just be you slaving your brain to some kind of computer mm-hmm. while your body labours for five years as punishment. And as soon as you've done the crime, you'll walk yourself to the police station. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's a terrifying potential future with it. I mean, I know I'll never get this, you know, as, as long as I have the control not to. Mm. I'll never get this in myself. But at the same time, would be amazing for, for people who are blind, who are, you know, it could solve a lot of massive issues yeah, for well, a number of people. Even people who've got, you know, problems, you know, might be missing arms, arms for example. Yeah. It would be a great way of using arms virtually. Yeah, and, and I'm so, sure some people would say it's, essentially the next evolution of humankind, you know, it's, it's an augmentation where people can expand their consciousness, expand their processing power, give themselves instantaneous access to information. You know, I mean, think of the matrix when they jack people in and Neo uploads a Kung Fu for eight seconds, wakes up and goes, I know, wakes up and says, I know Kung Fu. You know, you could, mm. you could feasibly see that with this and you can see the attraction for a lot of people saying, that will give me a, one hell of an advantage in life. And, mm. you know, you start you start talking about people, the haves and have-nots, you know. You start talking about people who have the Neuralink and people who don't have the Neuralink and what they'll be able to do compared to everyone else. Yeah. It's yeah. really going to create a massive divide, but I know I'm going to be on the, the underprivileged divide of things, I think, yeah, <laughs> because there's no way I'm going to say that. Yeah. And then when the massive hack happens, mate, the underprivileged will rise up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fantastic. (laughs) But, um, yeah, so really exciting development, though. I mean, what they're doing is freaking phenomenal. So, yeah, check out the full presentation together, the nuts and bolts on that. 
All right, moving on into other auto- autonomous news. There's a new system that's being trialled by Peloton, which is an autonomous follow system, and, and they demoed this by having one driver steer true trucks. Yeah, so they put their focus on autonomous following. So the company announced this technology that uses computers, sensors, and vehicle-to-vehicle communications to allow one driver to drive two separate trucks. Yeah, so last year Peloton began selling technology that enabled closer and safer truck platooning using sensors, vehicle-to-vehicle communications, and automatic powertrain control and banking. Uh, that version of the product, the Platoon Pro, requires a driver in the second truck to steer, but the new version will take the second driver allegedly out of the equation. So here's how it works. In the front truck, the driver drives normally, so whenever he adjusts his foot on the throttle, touches the brakes, or maneuvers the steering wheel, digital details describing the action are wirelessly transmitted to the computer in the following truck and using that information along with data gathered from its own collection of radars cameras and other sensors the second truck can safely trail close behind the first forming a single driver platoon the technology is currently being tested on closed tracks and you've got to wonder about the the potential for what could happen if if this goes wrong from some for example someone maybe driving in between the two trucks and mm. not realizing that they're in a platoon or what what happens if the driver in front makes an error and turns the wrong way and the second truck tries to do the same thing and mm. you know the, the the consequences of this going wrong while the benefits of having two trucks in Peloton or Platoon mm. means double the benefits. It also means potentially double or more of the, the downsides as well if things go 100%. wrong. 100%. You know what? There's a reason I never follow other cars. You know if you're with a mate and he's like, oh, just follow me, we'll drive there together. I will never follow you. Just tell me where we're going and I will set my GPS and I'll go there. Do you want to know why? Because most people, when they put their indicator on, will put it on at the last minute. So you don't give me enough warning. Secondly, mm. if there's a red light, we're going to be a minute behind each other. And if there's a series mm. of red lights, then good luck trying to catch up. You know what I mean? Like, it's just yeah. not, yeah, it's not worth it. Imagine the driver going through an orange light in the first truck and the second truck comes along behind, goes through it when it's red. Oh, that's a lawsuit happening. Yeah. No, they, I think they'll have a lot of work to do with this before it's market ready. But really interesting tech though. So um, yeah, oh, it yeah. saves having to pay us one driver out of the two. Really cool piece of news, a remote-controlled salmon farm is set to operate off Norway by 2020. Yeah, this is really cool. So it's it's a giant instrumented pen, and it's going to monitor the health of millions of fish and feed them automatically and effectively just keep them in this enclosure where they can get all their different nutrients and all, do all the monitoring and all sorts of stuff. But it'll just be sitting out there, essentially established uh, and remote-controlled off the coast. Yeah, so instrumented with wireless gauges, sensors and cameras, the sea pen will give workers on board a nearby barge the ability to monitor the fish, automatic feeders and a remotely operated net cleaner as well as environmental and meteorological conditions such as water depth, turbidity, salinity, oxygen, temperature, echolocators and pH levels. Now, the underwater feeding system reduces the energy cost of feeding by around about 50%. And because they're open ocean pens, they're going to keep salmon 10 to 40 meters beneath the surface, which is below the sunlit zone where sea lice and algae thrive, which means that they can effectively reduce or eliminate the need for delousing operations, which they say will significantly lower mortality rates in their salmon as well. That's actually a huge deal because sea lice, like the way we currently farm salmon, sea lice are actually 
actually really, really bad in that they can latch onto, I think they latch onto the salmon and sort of uh, kill them. But, you know, by putting them at a certain depth and automating a lot of the process, they're actually meaning that they can make a lot more money from it and reduce, yeah, death rates in the salmon. Mm. So initial testing for the first pen will happen in 2020 off the coast of Troms and near a small island that will help dampen the rough waves. But after they've seen positive results from the field trials, they're planning on building a bunch of pens and moving them out further to sea, essentially. Mm. So you could have a number of these pens operating out in the open ocean. That's really cool. Like remote farms just feeding those yeah. salmon and... Uh, yeah. I mean, think, think, tie this back to just, just spitballing here, but tie this back to our discussions about, you know, micro nations and floating nations and some of the seasteading p- that people are looking at doing. Yeah. I mean, this could be an effective way for a seasteading operation, like an, hmm. auto- an autonomous little nation floating on the ocean, essentially, <laughs> to feed themselves. I thought you were going <laughs> to suggest that the salmon were going to declare independence and, and yeah, but- <laughs> raise their own little flag. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Fair enough, but yeah, brilliant concept. So yeah, really cool. Wherever you're joining us from, it's a pleasure having you here. Why not drop into our Telegram channel and say hello? FOMO.show slash Telegram. All right, so we've got a cool tool of the week, and this one is called the Crypto Greed Index. And you found this one, Joe, uh, recently. Yeah, I actually was looking for something that was like the Fear and Greed Index for stocks that CNN do. Now, it's essentially you, you've got this for stocks and shares, and it gives you a, an idea of where the market's sitting at the moment. Yeah, CNN have it. It's called the Stock Fear and Greed Index, and it's a gauge diagram, almost like a, a speedometer on your car, where it shows on the lowest end of the axis, it shows complete fear and panic and it's never going to get any worse. And greed is in, you know, oh, prices are great, everything's good, la, la, la. And it's a really interesting metric because it shows you, yeah, the level of FOMO, I guess, in the marketplace. Mm, mm, This is really cool. So even, so for this week, we've had fear. Yesterday was, today was fear. Yesterday was fear. Last week was more fear. And then the last month was extreme greed, um, which is really true. Like we saw that play out in the market and they say they gather data from five sources. So they take volatility at 25%, market momentum slash volume at 25%, social media at 15%, surveys at 15%, dominance at 10% and Google trends at 10%. So that's effectively their formula to determine where the market is sitting yeah. at currently. So it's it's not as um, in-depth as CNN's as far as the metrics behind it, but it's really cool because it gives you just like a little, you know, a finger to the wind on, you know, how are people in the crypto market sitting at the moment? So really, really cool. Mm. Um, worth checking out. Yeah, and it's run by alternative.me. Yeah. And so check, I mean, it, it, it could be this is not investment advice, but I'm looking at this and thinking, well, this would be a, a good way to kind of gauge when good times to buy and sell mm, were potentially, mm. because you could you could essentially. I mean, what's the tradition? What's that uh, moniker about investing? It's uh, buy it's, when the there's blood in the streets, even if it's your own. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, don't buy if it's super green because it suggests that the prices are going to keep pushing up. But when it's on the fear side of things, you know that's a good opportunity for the the more swish on investor. Mm. Uh, while we're here, though, there are some new Coinbase trading metrics. Yeah, so they've got a number of different 
trading signals they've made available for free for all Coinbase users. And you can see this now when you go to a listing of a different currency and it's got, for example, top holder activity. And the example here has like 68% buy, 32% sell. Uh, has a typical hold time, so how long people are typically holding things for, and the popularity on Coinbase. Now, how's all this working, Joe? What's so, what's the push? So, this yeah, stuff? I took these screenshots and I shared them in our Telegram group the other day. Really, really cool. So the top holder activity just shows the percentage of Coinbase customers with big balances of those that specific currency that you're looking at who've increased or decreased in their position in that currency over the last 24 hours through trading. So if it's Bitcoin for example, they'll look at the top people who have Bitcoin on Coinbase and say, are they increasing or decreasing their position in Bitcoin? And it will show you where the big boys are moving, the people with the huge amounts of funds. Mm. And the typical hold time is an interesting metric as well, is showing how long does the average person hold on to it before selling it or sending it to another account or address. Yeah. So, I mean, this, this is probably the first of a number of other metrics they'll introduce, but really interesting to, to look at and see. And the more data you've got, the more informed decisions you can make. Yeah. So these are all available free to people who have a Coinbase account. So if you don't have a Coinbase account, if you can sign up to one, we're going to FOMO.show slash Coinbase. Cool. So, in privacy and security this week, we're talking about Google containers for Mozilla. So, thanks to Mamsi for sharing these on Telegram. And we first mentioned Facebook containers in episode 38. And you can go back and, and listen to what we talked about with Facebook containers there. But uh, Mamsi told us that there's actually a similar add-on for Firefox that does the same thing for Google. So, what does this actually do, Joe? So, essentially, it just isolates all these Google services in their own little bubble in a way. So, it doesn't let them interact with other things that you're doing online. So, it means that Google and Facebook, well, Google and Facebook, there are two different add-ons, but they can't delve into your personal browsing stuff. And when you're browsing to other websites on the internet, it sort of isolates Facebook away from the main stuff that you're doing online. So it's a, a nice way of protecting you from having them tracking you around the internet. Yeah, because if you jump on Facebook, for example, uh, on just a normal browser, that will download a whole bunch of cookies onto your browser. And then as you move around the internet, after you've visited Facebook, all that data will go back to Facebook. So Facebook will, will have a pretty good idea about where you've been. And similar with Google, Google does a similar thing. And that's why when you go to other sites and you have an ad pop up, it's quite targeted to, to the activity you've been doing because Google have that data to know, oh, well, he visited these five sites. So that's probably his interest. Let's feed him something based on that data. Mm, mm. And of course, then that lets them build a profile of you and yep. you know, they get more and more data on your browsing habits and what you like and what you don't like. So great little tool. Thanks for sharing that with us, Mamsie. And um, yeah, uh, you can check out the links in the show notes. So in this feature, we're looking at the Belt and Road Initiative, which has been initiated by the Chinese government. Yeah, it's an infrastructure development and investment project which involves 152 Sheesh. countries and international organisations in Asia, Europe, Africa, the Middle East, 
in the Americas. So Belt refers to the overland routes for road and rail transportation called the Silk Road Economic Belt. And the road refers to, funnily enough, the <laughs> sea routes uh, or the 21st century maritime wow. Silk Road. So there are some maps available online showing where these routes are going, but the countries that they touch, you know, you've got Germany, Italy, you know, it goes as far as Spain, Greece, uh, Kenya, Iran, Turkey, Russia. Uh, yeah, there's so many different places. Kazakhstan, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Cambodia, Mongolia, North Korea, Laos, Indonesia. This is huge. Yeah, it's massive. And they've got a number of different, uh, like we said, economic belts, silk roads, and then they've got economic corridors as well. So you can find some maps that actually t- that show the economic corridors. I'll show where the railroads are, uh, where some of the pipelines are. Um, there's just all sorts of different facets to this big Silk Road. And and, and their, their aim here is to essentially revive the Silk Road. So the Silk Road was an ancient trade route that essentially connected China and Asia all the way over to Europe. And it's the road that a lot of the different uh, merchants use to get trade and commerce from mm-hmm. one to the other. And there are all these cities that popped up around the Silk Road. And as trade shifted through the medieval periods into the Renaissance and onwards, a number of these places just died off. And and particularly as the sea routes started coming in and it became a lot more efficient to transport things via sea rather than over land, a lot of these places died off. And it, it had a big effect on China because China until that point was a big recipient of all this different trade because the road basically ended in China and then sent things back. But the government in China has essentially said, we want to restart that this again. We're now in a position where we lend a whole bunch of money to a whole different people. So we're the right people to do it. And they've jumped into it headlong. I mean, the progress they've made in six years is mm. incredible, the amount of stuff that's been so done. So we've got gas pipelines, oil pipelines, railroads, proposed economic corridors with trade routes incoming, ports that are being upgraded. I mean, the Belt and Road Initiative is about improving the physical infrastructure. It's infrastructure networks along these land corridors and sea corridors that roughly equate to the old Silk Road. So there are belts in the middle and this, yeah, this maritime Silk Road. So the initiative, when it first started, it defined five major priorities. And those priorities were policy coordination, infrastructure connectivity, unimpeded trade, financial integration, and connecting people. So these infrastructure corridors encompassing around 60 countries, primarily in Asia and Europe, but also Oceania and East Africa. Is it Oceania or is it Oceania? I, I can't pronounce Oceania, Oceania, East Africa. They're going to cost an estimated four to eight trillion US dollars. Yeah, and the initiative has been contrasted with the two US-centric trading agreements, which is the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. It's worth noting, though, that those two partnerships both excluded China. Mm, mm. So this is really China's way of hitting back, I guess, at the status quo, which is uh, very US-centric trading agreements, which involve Europe and involve you know Australia and Oceania and, and the Asian countries that are more US-focused. Mm-hmm. Now, the projects receive financial support from the Silk Road Fund and the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which are technically coordinated by the BNR Summit Forum. Now, the land corridors include the new Eurasian land bridge, which runs from Western China to Western Russia through Kazakhstan and includes the Silk Road Railway, which runs from China's Xinjiang Autonomous Region, Kazakhstan, Belarus, 
Poland and Germany. Now, the China-Mongolia-Russia corridor, which will run from northern China to the Russian Far East, the Russian government established Russian Direct Investment Fund and China's uh, China Investment Corporation, a Chinese government investment agency. They partnered in 2012 to create a Sino-Russian investment fund, which concentrates on the opportunities in bilateral integration there. Now, there's also the China-Central Asia-West Asia Corridor, which will run from Western China to Turkey, and the China-Indochina Peninsula Corridor, which will run from Southern China to Singapore. Now, closely related, you've got other things like the, the Bangladesh-China-India-Myanmar um, BCIM sorry, Economic Corridor, which runs from Southern China to Myanmar, and it's officially classified as closely related to the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah, and look, uh, the, the, you can do a really interesting study into Myanmar too, which is some uh, a country that uh, actually has a lot of population and is very forgotten in the the modern world for a number of re- reasons. But um, it's very interesting that China's focusing on them. But there's also the China-Pakistan mm. Economic Corridor, and this is becoming a very, very important one. And it's almost now included in the Belt and Road Initiative, which is about a 62 billion collection of infrastructure projects throughout Pakistan, and it's aiming to rapidly modernise Pakistan's transportation networks, energy infrastructure, and economy. So on on the 13th of November, back in 2016, the CPEC, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, became partly operational when Chinese cargo was transported overland to Guadalajara and uh, onward maritime shipment to Africa and West Asia. But this is really cool. I mean, for these countries here, it's there's these kind of, like you look at the knock-on effects ten years from now that this network will have had. I mean, you're looking at China, Mongolia, India, Pakistan, and uh, and many more in between. But it's so exciting what the potential is. Mm. Mm. So we thought, look, it's going to be impossible for us to cover every single country in in the the Belt and Road, and and we've what we're going to do essentially just to give you an idea of what this is looking like in practice is we're going to hone in on a few regions, cover some some news out of a few of the regions or some of the projects that are going on, and try and give you a, a broad view of how this is playing out in practice on the ground. And then also at the end, look at some of the issues from this and some of the knock-on effects and and what it's actually meaning in a number of these countries because what's being laid down now is essentially the economic framework for possibly the next 100 years. As China moves on to the international stage and becomes, for all intents and purposes, it's looking like they're going to become the next empire, the next dominant superpower for for the next 100 years or so. This is how it's going to play out. These are the these are the, the the veins and the arteries through which commerce is going to flow. So we thought we'd we'd hone in on a few different areas and, and give you guys a, a, a good idea of what's going on in some of these places. So let's start off with Kazakhstan. Now, this is a country in Central Asia. There's about 19, 18, 19 million people in population. Um, now, they're sandwiched between a few different countries of interest in this Belt and Road. Uh, I've got a few friends from Kazakhstan, and um, I mean, they connect China with Mongolia. They almost touch Mongolia, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and Russia. So they're right in the middle where all, like, if you're sending a train from, Ch- or even a telecommunications line from China, China through to Europe, you're going via Kazakhstan. 
Mm, mm. And Kazakhstan, not surprisingly, then have seen huge investment from China, and they, they were one of the earliest countries that were linked to this Belt and Road, and also one of the first countries where in, investment really turned into practical building operations and huge scale projects. And there's a, there's a few different locations in Kazakhstan which have really become like land mm. ports. The railway lines went very quickly into Kazakhstan and they've been building these massive land ports to essentially help unload the cargo from the China side, process it, uh, put it on the trains it needs to go on and then push that through to the European side from these Kazakhstan land ports. Mm. So Kazakhstan's a real melting pot and they speak Russian and Kazakh, but the capital, Almaty, is actually right near the Kyrgyzstan sort of Chinese side of the country. And this is where a lot of the trade and a lot of the stuff is run from in Kazakhstan. And yeah, so uh, cargoes from Europe to China via Kazakhstan are delivered in about 15 days, according to the president of Kazakhstan. So at the same time, shipping by sea would take four to six weeks. Yeah, and logistics around those routes are still being established, so that's probably going to get quicker. And there's a joint program for cooperation in the field of industry and investment, and it implements 51 Kazakhstan Chinese investment projects worth more than 27 billion already. So yeah, and there are great place for doing business because, yeah, there's a huge amount of potential for Kazakhstan. And with all this trade that's going through there, it's going to be pretty exciting. Yeah. And look, you've only got to look at the job listings in Kazakhstan. Um, I had a quick look at what's what's on offer there. And there are all sorts of professional jobs targeted towards people of from both Europe and China and also a lot of other internationals. And there's a number of public works projects going on as well, because as all this money's flooding in, people are seeing the knock-on effect. And the, there is a very quickly emerging middle class within Kazakhstan centered around these um all the money that's flowing in. I know, I know a couple of people myself that have recently moved there. One of them moved there from Switzerland and they had a very, very good job in Switzerland, but they've just moved to Kazakhstan because the opportunities for them and the pay for them as well is actually better there with what's currently going on. And I think they're involved in urban planning or something. But another thing that people are seeing with, with this knock-on effect is that there's these new communities uh, and new cities essentially coming up around these land ports that they're building in Kazakhstan as people essentially want to live close to where the action is and where their uh, jobs are. Oh, I should just add a little correction. I said that Almaty was the capital of Kazakhstan. I thought that because everyone who I've met from Kazakhstan and I've met, well, probably only about six people from Kazakhstan in my life, but um, I always, they were all from Almaty, but it actually turns out the capital is Nur Sultan. Oh, but yeah, okay. um, interesting. There, there's some pieces of news. It hasn't all been roses. The light rail project that's been going via Kazakhstan for this initiative has actually hit you know a number of problems during construction. So there's been some problems with financing and some some actual controversy around the project in, you know, not a lot of the money's not necessarily going there, they were saying, according to this news piece. Mm. So it's not all roses, but really, really cool because it's going to happen one way or another and it needs to happen, at least from yeah. China's perspective. Yeah. Definitely. So, yeah, there's so much more you could find on Kazakhstan. Um, we've got a number of articles linked in the show notes, but definitely if, you, if you're inter- at all interested in this, it's one of the best places to do your own research on because there's some really, really interesting stuff going on there. And Kazakhstan in general is just a really intriguing place, even from an investment proposition, because it is an emerging economy that is very, very well positioned. Um, and it, it, there's a number of signals 
uh, coming out of Kazakhstan that make it potentially very attractive for investors going mm-hmm. forward. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to the uh, continent of Africa. Now, we already covered Djibouti back in, was it episode 46, I believe, mm-hmm. um, when we started our geopolitics ter- series. But um, Africa uh, more heavily is actually of huge interest to China. So, um, what do you have to add on that? Yeah, so uh, recently Safe Haven put in an article basically looking at Africa's role in the new Silk Road. And what the Chinese are doing is they're making massive loans and building a number of infrastructure projects such as high-speed rail, dams, bridges, roads, schools and hospitals in Africa. And what actually happened was is that a, a lot of people pulled out of Africa not too long ago. There was investment flowing in and then a number of uh, companies pulled out uh, for various reasons, but China has stayed really steady in investing in Africa and not just investing in Africa, but sending a a number of, like a a huge number of its own citizens over to China um, to, to work on these infrastructure projects. Wow. This is the key to China's overseas investment. Adding infrastructure capacity makes their massive, often very early stage resource investments viable, and it creates long-lasting economic legacy for the host country. Yeah, so thanks to the trillions of foreign exchange reserves it holds, China offers their loans to a number of these African countries at really, really competitive rates. For example, the Export-Import Bank of China gave the Angolan government three loans at interest rates, which were essentially at the London Interbank offered rate. So, the rate banks charge each other on loans plus only 1.25%, up to about 1.75%. So, they were mm. they were quite low already. And they have also have a longer-term horizon for repayment because they're most likely after off-take mineral supply agreements uh, from early-stage development projects. And that's, so, the, that's the really important thing because a lot of Africa is untapped and there's huge mineral reserves underneath, but the infrastructure isn't fully there to be able to support that yet. You know, all of the, you know, mining activity, things like that. Because if there's no roads that get there, then how are you going to get stuff out of there? So exactly. this is actually a really long-term play. And yeah, the Chinese, they've got this long-term horizon for repayment because yeah, it's, it's going to take more time, but they're going to get their return. And that, that goes back to China's attitude on this in general, which has always been the long-term play. This this is the kind of, they're setting a lot of this up for their children and their children's children and their children's children's children, which is very different to the way a lot of uh, us think in the West with our, you know, short-term political cycles and short-term mm-hmm. investment and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, Angola is a really, really good example because it's it's been war-torn yeah. for a number of Yes, and China's essentially persevered with Mm. them and said, you know, we'll help you rebuild, we'll help you, we'll give you very cheap loans so you can not only rebuild, but they've sent a lot of their own companies over there to build roads, railways, hospitals, schools, water systems. It would be, it would amaze you the amount in gold that's been built by Chinese companies. And even Nigeria, they took two loans from China to finance electricity generating projects. The Chinese also built a hydropower project in the Republic of Congo that was repaid in oil. And and then they built another hydropower project in Ghana that was repaid in cocoa beans. 
Yeah, so one of the um, the, the representatives of one of the African countries, I've actually noted it down here, um, Isaac Tumasi Qantas said that while the West supports microfinance for the poor in Africa, China is setting up a $5 billion equity fund to foster investment there. The West advocates trade liberalization to open African markets, but China constructs special economic zones to draw Chinese firms to the continent. Westerners support government and democracy, Chinese build roads wow. and dams. So it's a very, very different approach between the two blocks. There's a lot that's attractive about what China's offering because at the end of the day, if I'm a country, I really want to have some roads. I want to have electricity. Like for a lot of things that are miss that are missing, you know, things like democracy are great, but you know, you probably really want to have a road to get to school and you want to have the school to be able to go to first. So it mm. seems like they're really putting the cart after the horse. Mm. Yeah, they're focusing on the real tangibles that matter to people. And there's another thing that, that shows that as well. So they've, the Chinese have come up with this concept of a blue economic passage, they call it, and that's going to connect Africa to Asia. And it's funded under the Belt and Road Initiative. And uh, it's very important, according to the Af- Africa Centre for Strategic Studies. So they said this is particularly evident in the Indian Ocean, where China's planned sea lanes are heavily concentrated and its rivalry with India is growing. So Africa's importance to China in this regard stems from their location uh, in a maritime area, which Beijing hopes to expand its presence and power projection. So even a decade ago, China's reach in Africa's adjacent waters was pretty much not even there at all. But today, it's estimated that the People's Liberation Army Navy... um, PLA Navy maintains five battleships and several submarines on continuous rotation in the Indian Ocean. And that's set to increase as India does the same. Mm. So according to the Africa Centre for Strategic Studies, there's over 200,000 Chinese nationals working on Belt and Road projects across Africa. And the Communist Party of China has adopted the concept of protecting overseas nationals as a core Chinese interest, which um, which is a little bit of deja vu yeah. if you look at what the US started doing with uh, with a number of their different interests and nationals and, and everything else in other places. It's uh, very similar rhetoric. It seems like they're learning from the best, I reckon. Mm. Wow, that's mm. that's that's both interesting and 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 a question mark at the same time. Wow. Mm. Yeah, so the World Bank has also estimated that Africa will need up to $170 billion in investment a year, a year, sorry, for 10 years to meet its infrastructure requirements. And, and, and most of that, seemingly, is going to be funded by China. Uh, and a study that was funded by the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa found that East Africa's exports could increase by as much as $192 million annually if these projects are used profitably. So that's, I mean, over, you know, when you look at that over the course of, you know, a hundred years, it's a huge amount of extra wealth is generated. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a really good extension to us. I think it was actually, it was, I think it was last episode we talked about Africa. It's a really good extension to that African segment to basically show that Africa is one of China's biggest focuses and they are betting very, very heavily on Africa becoming a, a powerhouse continent in the next you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. But it's not just Africa. There's also the Middle East. I mean, China's increasing their investment in the Middle East, you know, United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia mainly, and many Chinese companies are building headquarters there. 
Yeah, so Arabian Business covered this recently, and uh, they were talking about how Chinese companies are growing in the Middle East. For example, Tencent Games, which is the Chinese company uh, that are part owner in popular multiplayer titles such as Fortnite and PUBG, uh, they signed an MOU to launch their new global headquarters in Dubai's Internet City. And that's huge because Tencent are essentially the largest gaming company in the world. Construction's also completed on the um, $871 million Nor Abu Dhabi plant in the UAE, which was co-built by uh, a joint venture of Abu Dhabi Power Corporation and a consortium comprising of Japan's Marabeni and China's Jinko Seoul Holding. Yeah, and late in June, Etihad Rail, which is the developer operated behind UAE's 1,200-kilometre rail network, said it approved construction contracts worth $1.2 billion for packages B and C of their Stage 2. Now, China's Railway Construction Corporation was awarded the package B of the project, which spans 216 kilometres, and uh, the windfall at Etihad Rail's award of package A of Stage 2 in March 2019. So they're betting very heavily on China's railway the ability to, to pump out very, very high quality railways. And that's before we even mention that Saudi Arabia, I think they're spending, I think it was $500 billion building this brand new city out in the middle of nowhere. Mm. And, you know, the, the amount of effort that's going to be required for that, it would not surprise me to see China getting involved in that as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're, they're making a very big play. I mean, because Middle East, particularly the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia as kind of the, the wealthier portions of the Middle East, very strategically important, uh, very geopolitically important. And it's not surprising that China are essentially trying to woo them by spending as much money as they possibly mm-hmm. can uh, in the region and building as much goodwill as possible. Now, moving back a little closer to, to China, there's Pakistan. So the Pakistan-China corridor is widely regarded as one of the flagship projects of the One Belt, One Road initiative, and it's enthusiastically supported by both Beijing and Islamabad. So the proposed corridor is expected to connect Kashgar in Tianjin in China's far west with the port of Gwada in the province of Baluchistan. And that, that port, that's really important because the port of Gwada is, has very close proximity to the Persian Gulf and it could be a, used as a transshipment point for China's energy supplies, uh, which would basically take away the need for them to go through the Strait of Malacca in Southeast wow. Asia. And, and apart from serving as a commercial port, Gwada is, is also deep enough to accommodate submarines and aircraft carriers. So there's a military logic behind this development, which is becoming increasingly prominent as China's army and their navy embarks on pretty far-flung activities from anti-piracy missions in the Arabian Sea to the evacuation of Chinese workers in Libya, which is a huge operation. Mm, mm. And at a broader, broader strategic level, influential Chinese policymakers and analysts have also argued that the One Belt Run Road could be used as a strategic tool to counter the American administration's pivot to wow. Asia. So they're really saying that, look, we can outspend the US, we can build a lot more goodwill for us. And uh, somewhere like Pakistan is is very interesting because it's, it, I mean, they've got nuclear weapons, they've got a lot of potential locked up in their country. And uh, the US have courted them for a number of years, but it's always been a little bit of a an interesting relationship between Pakistan and the US. And uh, if China could flip that, and it seems like they're investing very, very heavily in that goal, uh, they there could be some serious geopolitical consequences for the US mm. and their allies. 
And then we move on to Russia. So the largest country by landmass, well, at least by the way it looks, I think, they've, they've been deepening their ties with China over the last few decades and they've got a very, very tight-knit relationship. Anything that's going from China to Europe, unless it's via sea, is going to go through Russia. Mm, mm. And we covered that they'd um, agreed on a new uh, oil line up in the up the top of Russia to to take oil essentially via sea through the Baltic Sea all the way down to China to transport natural gas. Uh, but Russia's been approving a number of different public works projects and public projects to connect China and Russia. And they recently approved a massive new highway across Russia of about 2,000 kilometres for the express purpose of connecting into the Chinese One Belt, One Road economic economic Mm. highway. Because uh, the thing about highway is not all coming from China. A lot of it's going back to China. And I mean, that's Mm. where, where Russia comes in massively. I mean, they're the probably the world's largest um, producer of, you know, natural gas. And they're right on China's doorstep. So they're absolutely going, you know, pedal to the metal on getting these infrastructure projects built. Yeah, because you've got to think about it this way. Like the countries that make it as easy as possible for trade to flow through them into China and make it as quick for China to both import and export are going to be the places that companies send their products. And you essentially can derive value from that trade route just by being mm-hmm. on the way. You can, you, can, you can impose different tariffs. You've obviously got a number of logistical concerns that need to spring up around that. And it gives you just some direct income by just being a part mm-hmm. of that trade route. So it's not surprising to see a number of these countries really stretch and try and become a part of the trade route Absolutely. however they can. I mean, just look at that recently approved highway across Russia. This highway is set to stretch over 2,000 kilometres from the Belarus border, just north of Ukraine, and is expected to become part of the fastest trucking route between China and Europe. And when we got mm. autonomous trucks and, you know, that's going to be a pe- like, no, yeah. nothing required except just road and fuel. Mm. Sounds like a driver's dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and speaking of Europe, um, Europe is obviously one of the big targets for China in this. They're looking at uh, ways to get their products over into Europe and also looking at ways to bring European products back over to China. And there's a number of different places in Europe that are going to benefit from this, but the the one place that has really put their hand up and jumped on this very early is Hamburg Mm. in Germany. Why is that the case? Yeah, well, they're the third busiest port in Europe and uh, from very early on they were garnering support from the Chinese and they were, you know, doing things to to sweeten that relationship. But it also means that if you can get your produce to Hamburg, there are um, um, so many supply routes that then spring out from Hamburg. Mm-hmm. So it's a real logistical hub of Europe. So a big focus for China as well has been trying to find the best way to get their produce and their trade routes to Hamburg as quickly yeah. as possible. So Hamburg is naturally a target. Now, there are other uh, other cities that are springing up and trying to challenge them for that, and I would say there will be several mm. more that will, you know, things will be starting to be so sent they're, to. They're but, also sending it to the port of Rotterdam, which we've spoken about on the show before, mm. which have been – Rotterdam have actually taken part in the blockchain tests, I believe, on blockchain yeah. shipping, but stuff's also good. Like they've got a full ve- – like veins going straight into the heart of Europe, into Spain, where there's a huge amount of stuff produced. And and I, mm. I believe when I was living in the UK, there was talk about 
getting trains to go across to the UK from this. So massive mm. potential. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, Rotterdam would be one of the places it, it may make sense to do that. And then France is another one as well. So, yeah, that'll be really interesting to watch and see. So what about development within China? Yeah, well, there's, an, there's a huge amount of development going on in China. And, and one of the big goals of the One Belt, One Road when it was floated was to essentially help a number of the less economically advanced regions in China to become more economically advanced. So you've got a, a centrally controlled communist re- regime in China. And one of their stated goals is to effectively make China as productive as it can be and reduce the imbalance between the regions as well. And this was one of the ways that they saw they could do it and essentially revitalize the the Western portions of China because at the moment everything's concentrated over in the East. You've got Beijing, Shanghai, um, a number of those large cities over there. And one of the biggest regions that they're focusing on is Xinjiang. I think I'm pronouncing that correct. So what is Xinjiang? Xinjiang is a bit of an enigma. This is a according to our write-up from lifestyle.mb.com.ph. And they said there is somewhat of an enigma. Um, located in the westernmost part of China, about five hours away by plane from Guangzhou or Beijing, Xinjiang is a, a Central Asian region that sits at the border of seven countries. Mongolia, Russia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. And it's China's door to the West, which it has been historically. So many of their ancient cities were portals of the Silk Road, that highway of economic, cultural, political, and religious exchanges that connected the West and the East from the 2nd century BC until the 18th century AD. Now, Xinjiang was initially composed of independent city-states and micro-kingdoms, but most of Xinjiang fell under the control of China during the Tang Dynasty. Now, while it had been an independent province, much of Xinjiang's pre-modern and modern history has been as part of China, either as frontier posts for the Tang or as trade hubs for the rest of the empire. And today, Xinjiang is one of China's five autonomous regions, together with uh, Guangxi, Inner Mongolia, Ningxia, and Tibet. Now, this is really interesting when you actually put a comment here that this is actually the home of the, is it Uyghurs, Uyghurs? I think it's Uyghurs. Uyghurs. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's how they pronounce it. We've heard a lot of pieces in the news about this group of people recently. Now, they they seem to have been under a lot of control in their area of China. Then China are doing a lot to keep these people under control. And there's been talk about putting them in concentration camps. There's been talk about digital surveillance, gulags in a way, and checkpoints all throughout Mm. the city and a huge amount of control. And when you put what's at stake for China here in context, you can see why they're being so brutal. Yeah, because, I mean, Xinjiang, the populace uh, have been one of the most problematic populaces for China, probably up there with Tibet and increasingly Hong Kong. They've caused them a lot of problems. They've really forced back. I mean, it's right there in the history. They used to be a number of independent city-states and micro-kingdoms. So Mm. they've never really worn being under China's thumb well. And a lot of them are uh, Muslim. A lot of them don't feel very culturally connected to China. A lot of them feel like they're almost just a 
like I guess a revenue raising region mm. for their overlords over in the east. So there's a lot of discontent there. And when China's coming up with this grand scheme of things, so this grand scheme of one belt run road and so much hinges on this region, yeah, it completely makes sense that they're putting their foot down. I mean, it's not right, but you can see the thinking in Beijing and um, Shanghai that they need to get this region underfoot. And that's why they're pumping so much money into it. And I think that part of the thinking is if we can pump enough money into it, we can make people affluent enough, then they may be happy to stay under the thumb just like a lot of Eastern mm-hmm. China has. You know, you've, you've seen that recently with the the changes in China. Um, the only reason people are, are putting up with it is because they're either too scared or that they're, they're wealthy enough that they don't really mm-hmm. need to mind. You know, their welfare is quite good. So, yeah, Xinjiang's a really interesting one. And, and, and we'll put the link to this article in the show notes because what it does really well is it runs through a number of the the better points of Xinjiang, like it shows some of the the development in the new cities. It shows how you've got these, like, it's amazing, actually. You've got these, like, ancient cities which are still standing and they haven't demolished them. They've kind of just built the city next to them. So you've got these vistas where you can see these old buildings from, like, way back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And then there's, like, there's like skyscrapers and apartment buildings right next to them. You wow. Know? Um, so it's actually a really amazing little region and and, and, and doing the research on it for, for this um, segment has kind of made me want to visit because it just looks so cool and so diverse and people seem really interesting and, yeah, there's just a lot of uh, – it seems very different to a lot of mm. the rest of China. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's – it's yeah, it's such a hot spot of culture, you know, where, yeah, seven of these different countries collide and trade routes and so much interesting stuff there. But it's also – it adds a really interesting – I found that context really interesting on why. Yeah, because previously I was like, why are they just cracking down on these Uyghurs? Is that just because they're Muslim or why is that? But it adds a lot of context when you look at the value to them. Anyway, let, let's mm. move on from that. Uh, we haven't really sung the praises of the Belt and Road, but we've we've sketched out a very big picture of all the amazing things that China is doing around the world, all the money they're pumping in. But there is a bit more of a dark side to the One Belt Run Road, and that's really in the legacy of debt it's leaving because so much of this expansion, so much of this infrastructure projects and so much of these trade route projects are built on debt uh, that countries are are owing to China. This one comes out of the print.in, which is a, an Indian magazine. And they said, yeah, most countries don't know how much they owe China. And it's a lot. So with loans totaling over $700 billion, a new study's found that over half of China's lending to developing countries is hidden. They've said that lending, whether as part of the Belt Road Initiative or otherwise, typically occurs between the state-owned entities in China and recipient countries. Now, the IMF found that fewer than one in 10 low-income developing countries, or LIDCs, report debts of public debts of public corporations external to the government, meaning that many data countries don't actually know how much money they've borrowed and under which conditions. So the study said that China often requires Chinese contractors to be used to implement these constructs contracts. So for risky debtors, China uses a circular lending strategy. Instead of transferring money to the debtor, they'll pay those loans directly to the Chinese contractors to ensure that the money stays within the Chinese financial system. 
So lending at unsustainable rates leads to developing countries to default, allowing China to seize the collateral. Now, collateral takes the form of strategic assets such as ports or through commodity export proceeds such as oil. And the authors of the article note that they're unaware of other official creditors securing loans this way. So this is quite unique to China. These low-income developing countries are the most vulnerable to these Chinese debt traps, owing more to China than all other credited governments and institutions combined. So many of them are commodity export and several are former highly indebted poor countries that received debt relief or cancellation in the 90s. Yeah, so Djibouti, which we've talked about before, currently has the highest public debt at 104% of its GDP, as estimated by the IMF, followed by Tonga and the Maldives. The most affected regions are Far East and Central Asia, particularly countries that border China like Laos or Kyrgyzstan. Mm, mm. And yeah, f- following these countries are oil exporting countries, BRI countries, and emerging market economies. So the disparity between these yeah Belt and Road Initiative countries' debt is vast, reflecting that Countries that have been a part of the Belt and Road Initiative for longer have had more opportunities to borrow and have accumulated more debt over time, according to that study. But what I would say is I read this book years back. It was it really opened my eyes up before I fully got into a lot of geopolitics. It was called Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And it was by a guy called John Perkins. He was a, an American chap and he used to work as a, I think they gave him a job title as something like chief economist or something like that. And his job was to go into these poor countries that needed you know, infrastructure and different bits and pieces that had a lot of wealth, like in oil or natural sort of resources. He would go in there and say, oh, look, we need lo- you need loans for this much, so we'll lend you loans for this. The conditions, you have to use American companies to build the infrastructure. Mm. And then the terms of the loan said, if you can't pay back, we'll just take in natural resources. And the loans Mm. from what he was writing in this book were always higher than the countries could afford. So it was, it sounds like China's just taking the exact same concept, just learning from the best and have done it themselves. Yeah, yeah, no, it does. You told me about this book and I haven't haven't read it yet, but um, yeah, it definitely does. It sounds like they're learning from the best. And look, this piece has come from an Indian outlet too, and it's it's no secret that India aren't the biggest fans of Belt and Road uh, Initiative at the moment, particularly with their support of Pakistan. So you have to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt, but I think the stats on the debt are definitely correct. And I, I remember seeing a piece, which we haven't linked in the show notes, um, but I, I read a piece probably about a year ago from Sri Lanka where Sri Lanka had been through something like this, where the Chinese government came in and, and talked to their government and said, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll build this port for you. Uh, the loan terms weren't great. And what eventually ended up happening was that the Sri Lankan government couldn't pay the loan and China took the port. And so there's now land there in in Sri Lanka, which is owned entirely by the Chinese, um, completely unencumbered. And it seems like that kind of strategy is playing out in a number of different areas in the world right now. And they're not exporting just Chinese industries, not just about industry, but from what it's looking like, they're also moving Chinese standards and exporting those as well. Yeah. I mean, we've we've seen the US 
mainly in in the public eye at least adopt a strategy of dominance by force almost you know like there's military presence in a number of places in the world if someone gets a little bit unsettled all of a sudden you know there's weapons of mass destruction hiding there or something similar <laughs> and 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 the you know the US will generally just go in guns blazing that seems to be their approach with a lot yeah. of these things china hasn't really acted like that they've they've taken quite a different approach where they've uh, it doesn't sound like it's completely unique but when you when you talk about that that book about about the economic hitman, but they've taken a very economic approach and they've looked at slowly building their dominance by commerce, finance, and debt. And I think some of that's come out of them seeing manufacturing uh, as they currently do it as only wow. short term because other people are starting yeah, to eat into yeah. that and they want to move to more of a high-end manufactured goods market, which is what a lot of nations do tend to move towards. But coming with that then, as you've seen with the UK, the US, Germany, once you start exporting high-end quality manufactured goods, you also start exporting your standards. And there's a number of other things that go with it. Mm, so interesting. According to the Larry Institute, uh, sorry, the Lowy Institute, there's a popular saying in China that third-tier companies make products. Second tier companies make technology and first tier companies make standards. There's a pervasive belief within China, particularly in policy circles and academia, that only companies that make standards can be considered world class companies. Mm, and so, a perfect example of this strategy that China are taking is their high speed railway. So, High speed, high speed railway is a high-end product. Initially, it was just developed within China. So China, China said, let's do this first in our country. And they learned how to do it really well. And you've now got all sorts of high-speed rail lines around China, probably only rivaled by some of the lines in Japan, for example. But what they're now saying is that, well, we're kind of the industry leaders in this technology and they're starting to market that technology to other countries. So, for example, they've recently started building – rail lines in Laos, Thailand, and then now it's starting to build them across Indonesia as well. That is huge because you've seen a lot like for for a lot of the the great point that you made earlier about them seeing manufacturing as only short term. You can only be the cheapest people for so long mm. until your middle class starts growing and then all of a sudden there's you're going to have to pay more. Mm. And then you've seen more and more tags, you know, made in Indonesia. Yep, completely. Yeah, and Indonesia, India have been looking at that as well. Myanmar, I know there's a there's a burgeoning, you know, cut price manufacturing. I guess you'd say operation growing up in there. And so, yeah, China are really looking to push for standards in a number of areas. Now, high-speed rail is one, uh, but they're also looking at doing it in energy and telecommunications wow. as well. So, um, so, so yeah, the, the, the Director of Strategic Development of PetroChina argued that China should use their extensive investment in oil and gas projects in Central Asian states to promote Chinese petroleum industry standards. And he said, based on the experience of American and European energy majors, controlling standards means having an upper hand in negotiation, more bargaining chips, and better profitability. To control standards, he says, is more important than anything else. And you've seen similar stuff with Huawei, uh, ZTE externally, particularly with their push in 5G tech. Yeah, so it's it's a it's a really interesting one because Huawei, uh, um, famously now being shut out of the US, uh, the US is advising their their allies to do similar, and I think it's because they may have picked up on this 
this trend. I mean, yeah, there's security issues there and that's the, that's the cover that's going on. But it is really true, this insight that if you take the lead in a market and you build the standards for this stuff and you're one of the biggest people rolling this out and kind of pushing the boundaries, it gives you incredible bargaining power and negotiation. And until now, the US and its allies have kind of had that bargaining power in most areas of technology. You know, they've been able to dictate things and you've even seen this recently with Facebook, Google, et cetera. I mean, you look at the the power that Google has over mm-hmm. um, standards within the web market. It's, it's, it's obscene the amount of power they have. And I, I dare say that it's not just a security concern that everyone's saying, oh, that's the reason we're shutting Huawei out. It's actually about, well, Huawei may just have better products, but if you let people, if you let Huawei roll them out and you let them dictate the standards, you lose your bargaining mm. power and you, you contribute to China moving more into this high-end technology manufacturing kind of area and being a, a global leader in that. Now, this whole project hasn't been without issues. Um, India pops out as the major one here. If you look at any of the maps at the, of the Belt and Road project, you'll see that India are conspicuously minimal on the project. There, it's it, it almost doesn't even touch it. And China have always been have always indicated a willingness to to cooperate with um with India. But India really seem like they haven't been completely excited about it. And yeah, Indian leaders are actually absent from the second Belt and Road Forum in May this year. Mm, mm. And you kind of get the feeling that India is Part of that motivation is definitely Pakistan. Like China have definitely focused on Pakistan a lot. And, you know, there's there's obviously tensions there between India and Pakistan. Mm. But I think part of it as well is just that India sees itself as almost like China's competitor. They're, they're in a, a similar stage with a growing middle class country coming out of, uh, you know, a repressive era where they, you know, either were controlled colonially or they, you know, had their own internal strife and were shut off from the rest of the world. And it's almost like a, I, I hate to say it, but almost like a jealousy on a, on a country level. It's like China's forged ahead and they've built you know this these huge industries for themselves, and they're now merging on to the to the global mm. scale. They've got similar landmass sizes, similar populations, and it's almost like India are looking at China and saying, "Well, why wasn't that us?" And then when China comes to them and says, "We want you to participate in our project," it's kind of like India saying, "No, we'll we'll make our own project. Mm. You know, it'll, it'll it'll be better. We'll try and be better than you." At least that's how that's how it looks yeah. from the outside. And the difficult thing is because India didn't jump on earlier, they may, if they don't build their own infrastructure and the sea routes, you know, when you look at that as well, there's a naval aspect of it. Hmm. They're going to end up actually probably having to pay more in the end by using everybody hmm. else's infrastructure. But it looks like China have really just, just cracked on and just not messed around. Yeah, because it's conspicuous on the map, isn't it? Like when you look at the map, you look at it and you go, geez, it would make more sense for China here just to go through India. Mm. Instead, they've kind of had to go around in different areas. And yeah, it's 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 going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting to watch. Uh, I mean, India, I just don't think they've got the global clout that China has to, to build their own network like this, nor do they have the financing mm. base that China has. So yeah, interesting area to watch. And if India get involved, then that could really negatively impact a number of other countries on the, on the way around uh, that China are skirting India with, but um, yeah, really cool. Mm. 
Yeah, well, we've also seen a cyber element to all this as well. Um, I think we're going to continue to see that. We, we covered the wiretapping going on in Africa mm-hmm. early on and some, some of the other areas that China's been building things. There's definitely a, um, uh, you know, as, as China's building out this infrastructure, they're, they're asking people to, to adopt certain standards, they're asking people to be on certain systems. There's definitely an element there where all the data is going back to China. And all the software that's being used is rapidly becoming Chinese software, or at least with links mm. to Chinese software. And I think that's that's there's going to be a definite trade-off there because China will will probably begin to start flexing their muscles on that cyber yeah. level. And also, you just don't really know what's been installed in some of this software as as it's rolled out. Yeah, you made a great point on you know looking at Sri Lanka. So China lent lent them a bunch of money for these ports they were developing in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka now couldn't pay, so China can either increase debt or take over the port or even demand other things. But you made another great point, which connects these the cyber element of things with the debt side of things, which is China's social credit system. Now, what happens if somebody can't pay back China? What if China put their social credit system into that other person's country? They get a bunch of valuable data. They can control the population pretty heavily and extract more value for themselves. You wonder if that's possible. Yeah, yeah. And, and look, it's it's you can just see it with the proliferation of, of U.S., Focus things, I guess, in our society in the last 60 or 70 years. You know, most of the movies that people watch have come from the US. A lot of the customs and the language and the standards that the US has, other countries have adopted simply by osmosis. You know, as, as you buy more of these products, you become more involved with these countries, you kind of adopt some of their uh, traits and some of, you know, the, the, the products they export. And I wonder if it's even going to go further, whether China's going to start to say to some of these countries to do business with us, you and your citizens need to have a social credit rating because the way our systems work, we can't actually transact with you unless you've got personality on our social credit system. And how many of these countries, when, when they're faced with the economic choice of not getting the benefits of the Belt and Road and Chinese trade or not being on the t- social credit system, are going to choose to say, oh, okay, we better go on the social credit system to keep our trade, you know, to keep our to keep our links with China. And it may even be a stripped down version of that social credit system as well, but it won't take long, you know, until the expectations start growing on companies and, and people really need to have more and more involvement in their social credit system and all their other monitoring systems that they set up. Mm. To wrap this session up, it's a, such an exciting project. It's Most of this is already built and it's only growing from here. It's touching so mm. many cool countries, whether it's Kazakhstan, like we mentioned, inside China itself, Russia, Pakistan, Africa, Europe. They are really spreading their fingers and there's a lot of pies. And mm. if you're not seeing the potential growth that China's going to have from this, like yeah, it's already happening. Yeah, it definitely is, and there's there's going to be a bunch of news coming out from it. But if you're like if you're an investor, like if you're someone that's that's looking for some some places to consider maybe putting some of your money that's a little bit more high risk but potentially high reward, this is one area I think that you should really be focusing on. You should really be looking at deeply because the potential economic upside from this is, particularly for a number of these developing countries, is stunning. Mm. Hmm. So yeah, really, really cool. Really glad we've managed to explore that. Thanks so much for doing your research on this, man. This is, I've really enjoyed hearing, learning more about this. It's so cool. 
and you'll name all of the countries we just chatted about. I want to invest in all of them. Just, I just need more money to invest. <laughs> and that's just a few, you know, I mean, we've only just pulled out a few of the different places that are, that are going on. There's so many more. If you use Feedly or some kind of other RSS feed, I'd recommend whacking in a Chinese Silk Road or One Belt Road, One Road or something else in there. Um, as a, uh, you can do like Google searches and things with Feedly um, as, a, as a search term. I've had that set up now for probably two years and it's just like the amount of news that comes out of this all the time, not really from your traditional news outlets, but from a lot of these, you know, developing countries, it's so cool to see. And it's, it's something that's really worth keeping track of. Cool. Cool. We'll actually add a link to Feedly in the show notes because both of us use it. Um, I actually just renewed for another couple, another year of the premium Feedly um, Mm. allows you to subscribe to a bunch of news sources in one place. And it's awesome. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. If you know somebody who might enjoy this, please feel free to share with them. You can find us at FOMO.show. You can jump on our Telegram at FOMO.show slash Telegram. You can follow us on Twitter at the underscore FOMO underscore show. Uh, You can jump onto YouTube at FOMO.show slash YouTube. That's it for us here at the FOMO Show. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like our show, please do feel free to subscribe in your podcast app of choice or via our YouTube channel. I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. And as always, remember, no FOMO. Belton Road, man. Oh, I'm so keen for this. Unbuckle. Or strap <laughs> in, I should say. <laughs> strap in for the Belton Road. <laughs> just a, that gif of Mr. Bean on a on a roller coaster just bored. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the one where he's like moving from side to side with like his 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 hand on his chin and I'm not sure. It's the one who's basically falling asleep. Just and oh, everyone around yeah. him is screaming, yep. and he's just like, <laughs> "Yeah, it's must have been so good." He's just so good at doing, yeah, without dialogue, just doing full, oh, mm. brilliant character. Rowan Atkinson, genius. Mate, Boom. that was in the freaking books. awesome. I. You did yeah. some seriously cool stuff there. That was so easy to go through. I freaking love that. Oh, good. Um, oh, man, I, I enjoy. I really enjoyed putting that together. I only wish I hadn't had such a crazy day. Oh, mate, whoa, whoa. Got a bit more well, in Imagine there. if you had an extra five minutes. That would have been – I wouldn't have been able to contain <laughs> myself. <laughs> no, that was awesome. There's just so much going yeah. on, hey, like – yeah. I didn't know you'd been following it I, so long. I even, yeah, yeah, I think because you mentioned it, I'm pretty sure you mentioned it to me before we started the oh, podcast yeah. um, and it was just an offhand comment and then I kind of went down the rabbit <laughs> hole and and ever since then I've had the um, the Feedly, um, like a, a specific Feedly feed just wow. dedicated to Belton Road. So like every day I get at least six articles just from Belton That's Road crazy. stuff. 
Um, and yeah, and like the reporting, there's just so much reporting around it, but it's all like, like you saw, um, Pakistan, India, mm, Kazakhstan, mm. like it, it's a number of these like really weird news sources you've never <laughs> heard of. Um, but they all report in English, which is really Great. interesting. Um, well, all the ones I see anyway. Yeah. So yeah, but oh, mate, I just, just want to learn how to, um, I need to work out how to get my hands on some of these stocks. Right. Well, I reckon we could just do an index fund search for those countries and look for the lowest fee, highest exposure yeah. to each of those individual ones. Because, um, I mean, yeah. I'm already in Pakistan, but um, and now is actually a fantastic time to be buying Pakistan because the prices are so low. It's like half the price it was when I bought it. Um, Fair income. Yeah. What do you um, use? I just use my stockbroker and I bought NY okay. oh, as in to find the funds. No, no, it's like as you broker. Oh, I, I just sure use my bank, like a um, uh, $15 to buy, $15 to sell. And as soon as Robin yeah. Hood are in Australia, I'll just be on there. Yeah, it's so hard paying fees. Yeah. Because I looked at um, eToro. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, just, yeah, but they're just, just pick the one with your bank, dude. Um, um, yeah. If not, as soon as Robin Hood comes out, we're spending a whole episode on it because I'm switching everything yes. over to it. Um, yes. Because ultimately, it's just about lower brokerage fees. And like at yep. the end of the day, it doesn't matter. There's no difference between them. I don't care how long it takes for me to execute an order. I would just want to buy and sell. And cheaper is yeah. better. Yeah, not use, not lose exactly, money in the process. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which shouldn't be that hard of an oh, ask. Yeah. yeah. I recently, um, I just whacked my almost super into... Oh, whatever Barefoot oh, yeah. recommended as far as the, um, you know, the high, the, the higher mm. risk, but, you know, higher return kind of um, fund on, you know, whatever Host Plus was offering. It's like half Australian shares, nice. half international nice. shares or something. Nice. But yeah, then I, then I was like, I need to, I need to find, um, find out who you use for your, your more interesting index funds overseas. Mm. But yeah, I'll see what ING Mate, offer. That's dope AF. Dude, my pizza yeah. is on its way, so I'm very excited. Oh, come on. Um, but yeah, awesome, mate, that was man. a great episode. Freaking love that. So yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, man.